For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. Please listen carefully. Welcome back to the Utterly Moderate Podcast. I hope everybody's holding on to those New Year's resolutions as long as they can. I'm very excited about our show today. In segment one, we've got Bob Inglis, a former Republican congressman from South Carolina and current executive director at Republic EN, an organization that proclaims, quote, we are the eco-right. We stand together because we believe in the power of American free enterprise and innovation to solve climate change. Together, we encourage, embolden, and applaud conservative climate leadership. The age of conservative climate disputation is over. End quote. You can check them out at republicen.org. That's R-E-P-U-B-L-I-C-E-N.org. We'll talk to Mr. Inglis about his own intellectual journey on climate change, the work they do at Republic EN, how conservative principles can help solve the problem of climate change, as well as the future of the GOP. Then in segment two, we'll take a look at some stories from around the news that caught my eye this week, including the sentencing of the three men convicted of murdering Ahmad Arbery, which is, of course, a really important story, and we'll talk about that in segment two. So first up, we've got Bob Inglis, former Republican congressman from South Carolina and current executive director at Republic EN. Thanks for joining the show today, Bob. Great to be with you. Thanks for having me. All right. So uh, for our listeners who aren't familiar with you, a lot of them are going to be. A lot of them are, are really uh, engaged in politics and very interested in politics, very interested in, in climate change and the, the, the kinds of issues that you're interested in. But for those who, who aren't, can you give us a brief uh, you know, summary of um, the time you spent in Congress in South Carolina? Yeah, so uh, I was a recidivist in Congress. You know, uh, I went back for a second, <laughs> second time. Uh, so I, I was, I served six years, and then I was out six years doing commercial real estate law. Then I came back for another six. Uh, I thought it was going to be longer than that, but I, I lost in a Republican primary in June of two thousand and ten. So it was six in, six out, six back in Congress. And now uh, doing this thing called RepublicEN.org. Yeah, we're definitely going to get to that. But, uh, you know, you made it sound like a bit of a prison sentence there. Like I was six in and six out. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is. It is recidivism. That's what that is. Yeah, you did use that term. <laughs> I was going to ask you, um, in going back through the history of your political career and looking at mm-hmm. how the elections panned out for you, it, it looked like you had, you know, 70 percent. Uh, the electorate, you know, for your first few elections starts to slip a little bit. You get to the aughts and now you're in the 60% range. And then, of course, uh, the tide completely turns. So 
Describe to us uh, what happened over the course in terms of your support over the course of that time, what the issues were. And then I want to talk a little bit about sort of what kind of change you saw in the electorate and in, and in our politics over that time. But let's let's first describe sort of what happened over the span of your career, strong support and then off a cliff. Yeah. So, and, and I guess there's also a, not just a change in the electric, but maybe a change in me, perhaps. Mm. So, uh, you know, in my first six years in Congress, um, I really uh, presented myself as pure as a driven snow. You know, I was the righteous one. Everyone else in the political process was pretty much swine. Um, and uh, that's the way it was for my first six years in Congress. It was sort of the, I was a, uh, 34 years old when I was elected to Congress, and I was going up there to straighten out the uh, terrible mess that we were in. You know, we were $300 billion in annual deficit. Oh, for those days to be just $300 billion out of whack, right? Um, so uh, now Lives we're, were way good. more out of whack. Yeah, yeah we were way more out of whack than that. And so, you know, I... Uh, I said that I'd limit myself to six years in Congress. Um, I didn't take any PAC money um, from political action committees, uh, you know, the lobbyist uh, thing. Um, I had a sign on the door, noticed all PACs. Remember, you didn't give me a dime and I don't owe you a thing. Uh, I mean, I was uh, I was pretty pure, you know, and uh, and pretty sanctimonious, too. Uh, and so that was my first six years. Then I was out of Congress for six years doing commercial real estate law, as I mentioned, uh, in Greenville, South Carolina, and um, had what we in the family called the teeth banging experience. Um, I uh, uh, was up in the middle of the night going to the bathroom, had time to think just twice. I'm not feeling too well. Next thing I knew, I woke up on the bathroom floor. Blood was everywhere. Um, and I had uh, passed out and hit my six front teeth on the bathroom counter on the way down. Oh, um, my and goodness. So, <laughs> so uh, at the hospital, they were thinking what we were thinking, heart attack, aneurysm, blood clot. Um, uh, first clue, uh, couldn't find a vein. That never happened for the IV. Uh, couldn't find a vein for that. Uh, second clue. You need to go to the bathroom? Uh, nope, I'm fine, thanks. Uh, they said, well, you've drunk the equivalent of two liters of Coke while you've been laying here. Uh, and then uh, third was uh, confirmed by the uh, CAT scan downtown at the hospital where they said, uh, uh, emergency room doctor comes in, he says, you're dehydrated. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, my wife said, what are you talking about? It's a heart attack, it's aneurysms, blood clot. The guy who had very little bedside manner said, uh, listen, your body is at its peak at age 30. Every decade thereafter, it's downhill. Oh. Take better care of yourself. Drink more water. <laughs> That's what he told me. Then we said, what about the teeth? He said, oh, just make an appointment with your dentist in the next couple of days. He, leaves, he left the room. We're thinking, that can't be right. Um, and so my wife got on the phone to our wonderful dentist, a guy named Dale Hunt in Greenville, South Carolina. And uh, Dale said, come right over. He canceled his morning, went to work, pulling my teeth down into place. Oh. With my wife uh, sitting in the chair next to me, she'd say, a little bit lower on that one, Dale. <laughs> 
and he'd pull it down a little bit more. <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> uh, splinted them. Uh, spent two years in braces. We've done some uh, implants since then. But uh, anyway, uh, what an experience. Uh, so now that I've made everybody squeamish <laughs> about um, uh, so here, a practical thing you're learning from listening to this podcast, drink more water. There you go. Look at that. <laughs> Do not get dehydrated. <laughs> it can happen to you. Um, and so, uh, but what was going on uh, more deeply was this. Uh, it's, it's amazing that uh, 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 God gives us this ability to process all kinds of things in these brains he's given us, you know. And so I'm waking up on the floor with blood everywhere, and I'm thinking, really, a heart attack aneurysm, blood clot. I thought it was the end. So um, there on the floor, that's what I was thinking, uh, heart attack aneurysm, blood clot. But then also at the same time, I had this thought um, uh, what are you going to do now? Um, which I attribute to to God asking me, what are you going to do now? I went back to Congress aware that I wasn't any better than anybody else in the political process, uh, that I wasn't pure as a driven snow, that we were all trying to, you know, sinners in need of grace, uh, beggars looking for bread, uh, all in need, all trying to find a way. And so it was a very different affect in English 2.0, which now and finally answering your question, I described to the Greenville News. I remember sitting on a park bench with the Greenville News reporter. Um, you know, Republicans always love to complain about the media. I always had great media. They're very fair people that covered what I said and did. Anyway, so uh, he wrote this great series where I described uh, to the district that this would be different. That last time around, I was so maniacally focused on term limits that I was surfing every wave of publicity in order, frankly, to run for the Senate, which was no more righteous than staying in the House and being committed to the House, right? Um, and uh, that this time around, Inglis 2.0, I'd be singularly focused on energy security. Um, that was sort of code language for climate change as well as other things. Uh, because there'd been a change uh, in my thinking about climate change in the in the process that we can go into if you want to. Um, and so um, when I said that to the district, they, um, uh, you know, uh, we, we thought there'd be a problem with the term limit pledge uh, being broken and with the, uh, you know, the change in affect. Um, but I had two primary opponents in 2004 when I was running again after that six-year hiatus. Um, and those two primary opponents uh, got uh, split 15% of the vote. That was a brag right there. Did you hear that? In other words, we, we got the other 85% of the vote. <laughs> okay, so the humbling's coming. So uh, that was 2004. And then 2006, still okay that I was focused on energy security. The economy was good. People were fine. 2008, I had a primary opponent who called me the Al Gore of the Republican Party because of my uh, interest in climate change. He didn't mean that as a Probably not a, a compliment. <laughs> no, no, yeah. he did not mean that as a compliment. Uh, and, uh, and so, thank goodness the Republican primary was in June of that year uh, because the financial crisis was happening long about October of 08. The wheels were coming off the financial system. And so, we skated past that primary. But then came the 10 cycle, and we knew it would be a difficult cycle. Um, 
And to show you how out of step I was with the electorate, uh, but maybe really intentionally out of step, is I, 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 I crafted our slogan. It was, America's sun is still rising. Uh, it's basically a remake of Ronald Reagan's Morning in America, you know. Um, and uh, the idea was, uh, okay, we're in bad shapes. Uh, you know, it's a bad situation here with the Great Recession on now, after the financial collapse. Uh, but let's pull ourselves together. That was not what people wanted to hear. Uh, they wanted to hear, it's so bad. Uh, you know, we, we, we hate our enemies. Uh, the Democrats are our enemies. They didn't want to hear about the future and hope. They wanted to hear that you could be as outraged as they were at the other side. So, um, yeah, I got tossed out of Congress in June of 2010 the Republican primary. So that's 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 how it all went from sanctimonious 1.0 to a different 2.0 that was going fine for a while until the Tea Party hit. I, I thought it was nice enough to be invited to that party, but I was specifically uninvited. <laughs> so I want to I want to transition here to talking about your pivot on climate change, but very quickly, uh, how how far in advance of that election? Did you realize that like negative partisanship, anger, that kind of stuff was going to be ruling the day or, or was it a shock to you? Um, I, I knew it was a problem, but I thought it would, things would come around. I thought people would appreciate somebody who's in Congress who would tell it to them straight and who would lead them to something better rather than just, you know, uh, accommodate them. You know, when, when uh, John Ashcroft was running for president, um, he's, he had a great line. He said, uh, we should challenge America to her greatest and best and not accommodate her at her lowest and least. And I thought that people would appreciate somebody saying, listen, it's not that bad. I mean, no, Barack Obama is not a secret Muslim, not a socialist, not a non-American. Uh, we can get past all this trouble um, and have a sort of a positive, optimistic affect. Um, that basically I had, I had learned, you know, back in 1.0, um, I had a wonderful experience with my friend John Kasich. Those first six years I was on the budget committee and, you know, I went there, as I said, uh, upset about the $300 billion annual deficit we were running. As you know, we balanced the budget Long about uh, uh, 99 or so, uh, 98, 99, the budget was balanced. Um, and uh, that was my six years that I spent in Congress, in that first time in Congress, were on the budget committee. And so John Kasich was a chairman of that committee. He went on to be governor of Ohio. Um, John uh, was hosting a dinner for the budgeteers one night. And um, uh, there was a guy sitting next to me, and then John was at the head of the table. And the guy next to me, who thankfully I can't remember who it was because it'd be embarrassing to him now, but he was telling John all the craziest stuff about Hillary Clinton. You know, the black helicopters, all of this is ancient history now. Some of your listeners won't know what in the world I'm talking about, but there are all kinds of crazy conspiracy theories about Hillary Clinton, uh, about, uh, you know, just crazy stuff. 
And so this guy is telling all that stuff to John. And I, to my shame, am sitting there giving nonverbal assent, you know, sort of mm. in my body language. Yeah, John, what do you think about that? Um, and then he gets, the guy gets to the end of the verbal vomit. And John looks at the two of us and he says, why would you say that about her? She is a beautiful and brilliant woman. Why would you say that about her? And for me, it was a great moment. It's like, oh, thanks, John. I needed that. Remember the shaving cream commercial? I know you're not old enough to remember the shaving cream commercial, but there's a, a hand comes out of the mirror and it slaps a guy in the face. And then the guy <laughs> says, thanks, I needed that. And that's what, that's what I, I really felt with John is like, oh, thank you, John, for straightening me out. Mm -hmm. And I thought really that people in the district, even in the midst of the Great Recession, even in the midst of the crazy things that were being said about Barack Obama, um, you know, that maybe they'd appreciate somebody telling them straight. Um, and, you know, it was like the time when the guy stood up at a campaign breakfast and he says to me, the, the, the President Obama, the President Obama is so unpatriotic. He doesn't put his hand over his heart when the Pledge of Allegiance is recited or the national anthem is played. And then he sat down in total disgust. And I'm standing there and I'm thinking, what do you expect of a secret Muslim, non-American, socialist? Any of those would have done just fine at that moment, right? People would have said, that's our Bob. He's with us. Right. And I'm standing there thinking, I got five kids. I got to go home to them. We tell them they gotta, it's always the right time to do the right thing. And so I said, I can't do it, won't do it. So I said to the guy, you know, I've been with President Obama. I have seen him put his hand over his heart. What you've just said is simply not true. He said, you know, the president, President Obama, is a loyal, patriotic American who loves his country, loves his wife, uh, loves his kids. I just disagree with him on many things. Afterwards, a Republican operative came up to me and said, don't give him that. Wow. <laughs> Probably good advice, good political advice, because uh, if I hadn't given Obama that, you know, the, the, the grace of saying, of course, he's a, he loves the country, loves his wife, loves his kids. Um, and of course, he's an American. For goodness sakes, he's born in Hawaii. And I think that's part of the United States. Um, and so, uh, you know, uh, if I hadn't given him that, maybe I could have survived the Tea Party thing. Mm. I could have joined them in being just saying crazy things about Barack Obama. Uh, that was the fashion at the time. Um, and so... Uh, I, well, thank God it's gone out of fashion. We've come back to sane politics Exactly. Now. It's all sane now. Yeah. <laughs> now, now we have alternative facts. So you can say whatever you want to. Um, well, I mean, I could, I could forgive you for not... I mean, it sounds like what you're saying is you, you saw the tide turning, but you didn't expect it to be permanent. Yeah, I thought that I thought that with some leadership, you could direct the tide, you could direct the flow of that river. Um, and I'd still believe that to be true. Uh, sometimes the river goes off in a way that's destructive and self-destructive, really, to the country. Uh, but I think it will eventually uh, meander back to a true course uh, because we're clearly off course at this point. I mean, when when... When something like 71% of people in my party, the Republican Party, believe that the election was stolen from Donald Trump, which is factually incorrect, 
then you are you're, you're watching the river flow out of its banks and do destructive things. We need to get back to a straight flow on this river, which is, no, no, what happened is Joe Biden got more votes. <laughs> That's what <laughs> happened. And so it reminds me of back in high school, you know, and I'm sure everybody's had this experience. When your team is losing, you are certain that the referees are for the other <laughs> team, right? That's what it is. And so through the stands, that's a good analogy. Passes yeah. the rumor that did you know that the referee's daughter is on the team or son is on the, <laughs> you know, and all that stuff. And then it all turns out not to be true. No, no, it's not the right. referees. It's that your team wasn't shooting as many goals. That's what happened in that game, and that's what happened in the. In the 2020 election is we just didn't get it. Donald Trump didn't get as many votes as Joe Biden did. That's what happened. So uh, if we have time at the end of this interview, I want to get back to this because I, I'm, I'm not seeing that number fall at all. Like you would expect yeah. after the election, that number would start to fall and it's not. And um, so you and I, I'll take the pessimistic side and you can take the optimistic side that this thing is going to get better. But let's hit pause on that conversation yeah. because I want to talk about the really good work you're doing with RepublicEN.org. Um, can you spell that for our listeners? Yeah, so it's RepublicEN.org. EN for energy, entrepreneurship, uh, the environment. Uh, it's it's a, a way of solving climate change with free enterprise. Right. And I mean, on your website, you guys say, look, the, the facts are not in dispute. Climate change is happening. Uh, human activities are a huge part of this. And so conservatives need to set that dispute aside and get into the game and actually promote principles, conservative principles that can help address it. And I think our listeners would really benefit from hearing you talk about your own intellectual journey because you didn't start out believing in the facts of, of climate change. And that changed over time. So can you talk about your journey and how you pivoted towards this new understanding and new um, commitment to addressing climate change? Yeah. So for my first six years in Congress, I said that climate change was nonsense. I didn't know anything about it except that Al Gore was for it. Um, and, and as much as uh, I represented probably one of the reddest districts in the reddest state of the nation, Greenville, Spartanburg, South Carolina, that was the end of the inquiry for me. Okay, so I admit that's pretty ignorant, but that's the way it was for my first six years in Congress. Um, Al's for it, I'm against it. Um, and so then I was out of Congress uh, six years in commercial real estate law um, at back home in Greenville, South Carolina, and, and my son came to me as I was running for Congress for what I described earlier as English 2.0 um, in 2004. So he had just turned 18 and he was voting for the first time. So he's the eldest of our five kids. And he came to me and he said, Dad, I'll vote for you, but you're going to clean up your act on the environment. Um, uh, so wow. uh, his four sisters agreed, his mother agreed. That's a new constituency. You know, those people can change the locks on the doors to your house. Uh, <laughs> very important to respond to that constituency. Um, so that was step. Were you already starting to shift your opinion at that point? Or I mean, what was the? It was really, uh, I mean, it was Robert helping me to see that, uh, you know, and, and his sisters, uh, his mother. Um, and so that was step one. Of the three of us, three step metamorphosis. Step two was going to Antarctica with the science committee and seeing the evidence in the ice core drillings. You know, uh, 
Uh, a fun fact to know until the South Pole is a desert. It gets a quarter of an inch of precipitation a year. It's 10,000 feet above sea level at the South Pole. So there's 5,000 feet of ice on top of 5,000 feet of dirt. Um, and uh, in that 5,000 feet of ice, there's an amazing record of the Earth's atmosphere. And so scientists simply drill down through the ice, pull up cores, and then stick them in coolers and fly them off to the freezers at the Bird Polar Research Center at Ohio State University. And um, what you see in those cores is um, stable levels of CO2 and then an uptick coinciding with the Industrial Revolution uh, when we started burning fossil fuels. Um, and so uh, that evidence is pretty compelling to me. So that's step two. Step three was another science committee trip and something of a spiritual awakening, which seems unlikely on a godless science committee trip because we all know that all scientists are godless, right? Um, <laughs> apparently not because um, this Aussie climate scientist who I was snorkeling with was showing me the glories of the Great Barrier Reef and the challenge of coral bleaching. And uh, I could see that he was worshiping God and what he was showing me. You know, um, St. Francis of Assisi said, preach the gospel at all times. If necessary, use words. And so Scott was preaching the gospel. Um, I, could, I could see it in his eyes. It's written all over his face. It's in his excitement about what he was showing me. And so um, he's now become a very dear friend. And uh, so later we had a chance to talk. And um, he told me about conservation changes that he was making in his life in order to love God and love people, people who will come after us. And so I got right inspired. I wanted to be like uh, Scott Heron, loving God and loving That's powerful. people. Yeah. And so I came home and introduced the Raise Wages Cut Carbon Act of 2009. Uh, you see, that was 2009. That's coming into that cycle, that 2010 cycle where things are not going well, you know. Uh, You've always had good timing. Yeah, yeah. there's not good political timing <laughs> to be talking about a revenue neutral, border adjustable carbon tax. Uh, I tried to say, pay no attention, ladies and gentlemen, those last two words, carbon tax. Uh, let's talk about the first two <laughs> things. It's revenue neutral, which means we're going to cut taxes somewhere else if we're going to put on this new tax so there'll be no growth of government. And it's going to be border adjustable, which means we're going to apply the tax to imports from China and other countries unless they have the same price on carbon dioxide. Um, so that, of course, got me in a great deal of trouble. I think for a lot of people, it was the last straw. It wasn't my only heresy against what became Republican orthodoxy. I mean, I, there were other things that uh, were out there too, but it was probably the most enduring heresy uh, because it seemed that I'd crossed to the other side and that I was marching with the other team. Um, and uh, that um, so... That led to my defeat um, in uh, June of 2010. But like you say, there were, there were other heresies too. I, I, I was for comprehensive immigration reform, although we never called it that. Um, I'd voted against a troop surge in Iraq, um, uh, you know, even though my friend, and he is my friend, George W. Bush, uh, I wanted him to succeed, wanted us to succeed. I just wanted the Iraqis to be in charge of that. 
Um, what else sins did I commit? Um, I guess, uh, and, but my most enduring sin was just saying that climate change is real and let's do something about it. So I teach uh, an environmental sociology class. Um, and one of the things my students love is the documentary, The Merchants of Doubt. And you play a very prominent role in that. And you come off looking very good in that. Um, how did you come to that project? And what did you end up thinking about it? You know, Robbie Kenner, the filmmaker who made Merchants of Doubt, called me up and he's given me his whole pitch about how, uh, you know, uh, I did this thing called Food Inc. He tell, told me and uh, and uh, I'm sort of holding out the receiver like, go, go ahead and ask me because I'm going to say yes, because our daughter had come home with Food Inc. from college. It's uh, one of Robbie Kenner's films. And it really changed the way that uh, we try to approach food. and uh, And so... Anyway, I was going to tell him yes if you just stop giving the sales pitch because as like my polling numbers internal to the family are going to go up if I if I participate in a film with Robbie <laughs> Kenner, and so so I did. He's really a wonderful uh, wonderful guy and a brilliant filmmaker. Uh, if you notice in Merchants of Doubt, there's absolutely no narration. It's an incredibly hard way to do a documentary. He listens to many, many people uh, that he's filming. And then he puts it all together so that they carry the whole message. It's really an incredible amount of work. Um, it's a lot easier to do a documentary if you can just break in with, uh, pick up a microphone and do some uh, narration uh, to move things yeah. along in a film. But no, no, Robbie does it the hard and very creative way. And so it's, it's wonderful to participate with him on that. I, I really loved it. And of course, he, if you watch the film, he collapsed those three steps I was just describing into one. He wasn't doing a film on the life and times of Bob Inglis. So, uh, you know, he had to collapse <laughs> it a little bit. But uh, yeah, it was a three-step metamorphosis. It was fun to work with Robbie. Uh, he's just a very creative guy. Yeah, uh, great film. Um, your segment hit me hits me in two ways. Uh, the first part of it, where you're talking to the radio host and that sort of thing, um, you know, is sad because it's a, a very much a reflection of our politics. The first part made me happy because you see the empirical evidence and that you know convinces you. But then the third part was just really touching the the what you said about you know why we oppose these things and how we can come together. So anyway, so I would encourage people to watch that. But let's move on. Tell me about uh, RepublicEN.org. What are you guys doing? Um, promote the heck out of it. Yeah, so we're, <laughs> we're conservatives who care about climate. And we uh, are out to show that there are free enterprise solutions to climate. And that what this is, is a problem of economics that has an environmental consequence. And so it's just incumbent on conservatives to step forward with a solid economic solution. And that solution is to basically just price in the negative effects of burning fossil fuels into products so that consumers in the liberty of enlightened self-interest start choosing cleaner because it's cheaper. Because once you make dirty accountable by pricing in those negative effects, who wants to pay more for dirty? Um, and so it's a simple concept of internalizing negative externalities. 
I once said that to a reporter at the Greenville News, uh, the largest newspaper in the district I represented, the gas stop. He said, what'd you say? And I said, we need to internalize negative externalities. He said, I can't write that in this paper, man. We write at the seventh grade level. <laughs> and I said, okay, uh, reveal the hidden cost. Next day in the paper, it said, English says we need to reveal the hidden cost of the burning of fossil fuels. That's it. That's internalizing negative externalities. It's basically that if I'm English Industries, let's say, and I'm uh, making a product that's useful to society, but my smokestack fouls the lungs of my neighbors, and I send a lot of CO2 up that uh, is fouling neighbors around the world. Um, now, that stinks for my neighbors, uh, but it's pretty good for me because I don't have to buy the new equipment that would sequester that CO2 or to scrub my stack better. Um, it's good for me. It's good for my customers too, because I sell them a particularly cheap widget, you know? Um, meanwhile, across town, I've got a competitor and she has new equipment. Um, and, uh, she doesn't dump on her neighbors, but her price point is higher. So I beat her every day in the marketplace. Stinks for her, stinks for my neighbors. Pretty good for my customers, great for me. If you just step in and make me accountable and say, Inglis, no, no more, no more of that. Be even biblically accountable. Hold your ash on your property. You can't do on your property something that harms someone else's person or property. That's Old Testament law. It became English common law. It's American common law. And there is a right, an action in trespass against me. But my neighbors are generally poor. Because they, um, it's cheap land next to me for residential purposes. They're disproportionately of color. And they don't have enough money to sue me. Because I could bury them with, uh, in that litigation with uh, my lawyers. And so it's really pretty a stinky deal, right? But if you make me accountable, then and by putting a price on those emissions, by doing a carbon tax, for example then I would have to buy the new equipment. And at that point, my neighbors would no longer be breathing in my pollution. I wouldn't be polluting the whole world with my CO2. And my competitor across town might beat me in the marketplace because now her product would actually be the cleaner one, would actually be cheaper compared to mine that now has all of its cost put in on it. And so that concept, we think, is rock-solid conservatism. And the proof of that is a two-minute clip you'll find on our website where Milton Friedman, the father of the Chicago School of Economics, Ronald Reagan's economics advisor, is on the Phil Donahue show. And Phil Donahue asked him, what do you do about pollution then, Dr. Friedman, if you don't want to regulate it? Friedman says, you tax it. You tax pollution. <laughs> and then he goes on to explain what I've just tried to explain, which is internalizing negative externalities. And that is rock-solid conservatism. And, and by the way, we, we, we do present it as, as that. But let me be fair. Uh it's the same thing that Al Gore has been for for about 30 years. 
<laughs> so you are the Republicans, Al Gore. They were right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's that they were right all along. It's it's in fact. I once asked a senior economist, in other words, an uh, older fella at the at uh, Virginia Tech, to give me the name of an economist that I should read that would disagree with this concept that I've just been describing of internalizing negative externalities. He sat back in his chair and he thought for a minute, and he sat back up to tell me, "Can't think of one." He says, uh, "In fact, you can't be an economist if you disagree with that." He said, uh, it'd be like being a scientist and not believing in the scientific method. Pretty good endorsement. Yeah. And so, <laughs> really, you look across the political spectrum. It's everybody from Greg Mankiw on the right to Paul Krugman on the left. They, they all agree, really, that uh, it's the most obvious thing to do about climate change is just start with a carbon tax. And then things would change. Um, and so... Um, so I'll give you an example. We, we were doing a field trip recently with a member of Congress in Miami. We went to the public's grocery store, needed to get some sandwiches and some uh, some forks and spoons. And so went to the shelf. There were the plastic forks and spoons. In the future, if we internalize negative externalities, there'd probably be a wooden spork next to those plastic forks. And it would probably be made by somebody in South Georgia who was uh, chopping down loblolly pines that he grew, turning them into sporks, a renewable resource that doesn't have the price of the plastic that has those negative effects built into it. Once you build in those negative effects, that spork, the, foot, the wooden one, would be cheaper than the plastic one. And I would choose the wooden one and the world would be better off. Not because anybody told me what to do, just because I saw the price on the shelf. Let's see, there's a plastic one. It's got all of its cost in it now. It's presenting those to the marketplace. There's a wooden one. It's cheaper. It's cleaner. It's renewable. I think I'll get that one. Not because anybody incentivized me with some kind of tax incentive or regulated my life telling me what I had to have. No, no, it's a price. <laughs> and and then Economics comes crashing in with a solution to climate change. Um, and, and so it's, it's pretty exciting, really. We think it's a simple solution that's uh, pretty exciting. All right. Well, make sure everyone visits republicen.org. That's republicen.org. And we'll put that in the show description. We'll hyperlink it. Um, should be very easy for you to get to it. So um, we're so glad you came on the show today. Mr. Inglis, can we uh, wrap up with some rapid fire questions? Sure. You consider yourself pro-life? Yes. Uh, your perspective on what's coming down the pike with Roe? Um, I think the Supreme Court will probably uh, return it to the states to make decisions about, uh, about abortion. Uh, modern Republican Party, do you fit in? Uh, no, not in the current party, but I think that party is going to change because it's going to come back to itself. We need a free enterprise, individual responsibility party. And it's going to come back into style after a period of departure here. All right, here's a tough one. Uh, I won't put words in your mouth, but uh, to me, it appears the Republican Party is taking a really troubling authoritarian turn. Am I wrong? I think that there is an authoritarian tendency that we need to contend with as Republicans. So we, that's not that should not be us, but it has been us 
Uh, it's what uh, Donald Trump gave us, is that kind of authoritarian kind of uh, feel to it. He didn't invent it, but he surely did advance it. Uh, Democrats, I, I assume, aren't going to do enough on this. But even if they do, I think they're going to focus mostly on the vote casting part of it. I think the vote counting part of it is really, really important. Um, and and one of the things that really hit me hard was that Raffensperger phone call that uh, leaked um, in a sentence or less. When you heard that Raffensperger phone call, when you heard him saying, find me enough votes, Bob Inglis's response was? It's just shock. I could not believe that a president of the United States would say that to an election official in the state of Georgia. Can we fix our problems of misinformation and disinformation poisoning our country? I think so. If And I put a lot of faith in young people here because they know to check sources better than their grandparents. Their grandparents get an email and they forward it. The forward button should be removed from some computers <laughs> <laughs> because they forward stuff without checking it out and finding out that it's just wrong. Um, and once you get bitten by that, and young people have been bitten maybe more than their grandparents, um, they realize, oh, wait a minute, check it out before you forward it. We've talked about a lot of negative, but as a, on the positive side, Republican politicians at the federal level today, currently in power, who you admire? Um, Mitt Romney, Senator uh, Mike Braun, um, and uh, in the House, uh, John Curtis of Utah. Tucker Carlson, Patriot Purge, the black helicopters are coming for you. Do people like him and Alex Jones and all the rest, do they believe their own stuff? I can't believe that they do. I think it's all an act. So like Rush Limbaugh used to say, you know, that he, he was an entertainer, he told us. Uh, early on that show, he, he, told, he didn't believe, necessarily believe this stuff. He was just an entertainer. Um, and so, uh, no, I, I can't believe that, uh, that uh, people of uh, ordinary intelligence could actually believe what, they, what, the, what they're saying on the on TV. Bob Inglis's weekly or daily media diet consists of? An awful lot of uh, Politico and The Hill and The New York Times and The Greenville News, Greenville, South Carolina News, uh, and a lot of NPR listening. And my big thing is The Economist, which... Um, I can never read because it's too dense, but I can listen to while I'm working out. So it comes uh, in recorded form in eight hours. I get English lessons as well as uh, the news. <laughs> All right. And uh, last one, and this is very much in line with uh, issues that are really close to your heart and that are important to the constituency in your household, which I'm learning in this interview is really, really important. If you want to appeal to Bob Inglis, then appeal to his family. So, uh, as you saw the recent IPCC assessment, um, you saw what came out of Glasgow, your uh, short-term and long-term uh, perspective on the future. How optimistic are you that we're going to tackle this problem? I am certain that we're going to win on climate. The question is whether we win soon enough to avoid the worst consequences. But I am certain that we're going to win on climate, that we are going to do the obvious which is we're going to price in the negative effects of burning fossil fuels. One way or another, we're going to do it inefficiently through regulations and uh, fickle tax incentives, 
or we're going to do it efficiently through a straight up pricing in through a carbon tax that's revenue neutral, cut taxes somewhere else in equal amount and border adjustable, apply it to countries that don't have the same price on carbon dioxide. But we will act on climate. It's just, will we act soon enough? Bob Inglis, thank you so much for joining us today. And all of our listeners, don't forget to go visit republicen.org. That's republicen.org. Bob, thank you so much. It is great to be with you. Thanks for the opportunity. All right. Well, it's time to wrap up the show with a few stories from around the news that caught my eye this past week. The first is the sentencing late last week of the three men convicted in November of last year of murder for chasing and killing Ahmad Arbery a case which became part of the larger national conversation on racial injustice. All three men were sentenced to life in prison. As Ross Bynum from the Associated Press recounts, Greg and Travis McMichael grabbed guns and jumped in a pickup truck to chase Arbery after spotting him running in their Georgia neighborhood in February of 2020. Their neighbor, William Bryan, joined the pursuit in his own truck a chase which ended with Travis McMichael firing close-range shotgun blasts and killing Arbery. You can read more about this from folks like Ross Bynum at the Associated Press, as well as any other major news outlet. Another story that caught my eye was a piece by Tim Miller in The Bulwark on January 10th, titled, I Spent Insurrection Week Listening to Steve Bannon, which is a podcast where Bannon and others asserted that They should seize the day. We're ashamed of nothing. We're proud of the work we did on January 6th. This would be less serious if not for the fact that, as Miller notes, Bannon's show is a top 10 performing podcast on Apple Podcasts, and there were so many things that were troubling that Miller reports on that he heard in this podcast, including, of course, the the big lie that Biden did not legitimately win the election, that Trump actually won but that Biden stole it from him. Um, They're still claiming that the election results from the fall of 2020 will be decertified in states like Arizona. Steve Bannon and Peter Navarro discussed how they tried to take advantage of the Electoral Count Act. Uh, There were open preparations for a 2024 coup attempt. They argued that the medical establishment has covered up nearly a half a million deaths from the COVID vaccines. Um, They're aiming to put people in positions of power throughout the country to subvert future elections. Marjorie Taylor Greene came on and she said, I don't want to alarm anyone, but I think that our country is already gone. I think we're post-constitution and I think China is absolutely ahead of us. Just really, really troubling stuff. And again, you can check it out. Tim Miller, uh, January 10th, titled, I Spent Insurrection Week Listening to Steve Bannon. And that last quote from Marjorie Taylor Greene, I think that our country is already gone. I think we're post-Constitution. I'm sure there's a variety of ways that can be interpreted, uh, but to me that sounds like um, a pretty clear call for authoritarian tactics and um, just really, really troubling in line with all the other authoritarian patterns we've seen from the GOP lately. Um, This is really, really troubling stuff. Which leads me to my third story, which was uh, a pair of speeches by President Biden and Vice President Harris in Atlanta on Tuesday, January 11th, where they were calling on Congress to pass uh, voting rights legislation. So Biden said, quote, history has never been kind to those who sided with voter suppression over voters' rights, and it will be less kind 
for those who side with election subversion, unquote. Harris said, quote, the assault on our freedom to vote will be felt by every American in every community and every political party. And if we stand idly by, our entire nation will pay the price for generations to come, unquote. She also warned that it is uncertain when there will be another opportunity to pass such legislation. Um, These speeches were covered by many major news outlets, including a good piece by Maya Ward in Politico on January 11th. Ward notes that uh, Biden and Harris's speech, comma, Senate Democrats, are expected to force another vote on an election reform bill soon, and efforts to block the bill could lead to serious consideration of changes to the filibuster, at least when it comes to voting rights legislation. Ward also notes that some Senate Republicans are currently negotiating with a small number of Democrats in the upper chamber about potential changes to the Electoral Count Act, an 1887 law that lays out the process for certifying the presidential election results. And as important as I think the vote casting side of reform is, many scholars believe the vote counting side is actually where the immediate threat lies with all these authoritarian tendencies I've been talking about. Um, and, you know, shenanigans with the electoral vote count. And so, you know, I don't want to get out over my skis on this. I'm really hoping that this comes to fruition. It may amount to nothing. But, um, you know, we really need to protect future elections from any shenanigans with the electoral count. And so I'm hoping that whatever is happening behind closed doors in Congress um, ends up in some real meaningful legislation that really matters. So we'll end the show on that positive note. It sounds like there are some good developments there. I hope they continue. I hope they result in something that's really meaningful. So that's it for today's episode. Thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to visit us at connorsforum.org. That's C-O-N-N-O-R-S-F-O-R-U-M.org. Connorsforum.org. We'll see you next time. Happy trails to you Until we meet again Happy trails to you Keep smiling until then Who cares about the clouds when we're together Just sing a song and bring the sunny weather Happy trails to you Till we meet again
And may the good Lord take a liking to you. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.